All right, church, I hope you'll take your Bible or find one around you and turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're continuing our walk through the Sermon on the Mount. As you turn there, I want you to think back to the story of King David and his adultery with Bathsheba. I'm not going to retell the story. I think most, if not all of us, are familiar with it. You can read it this afternoon in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But remember the story. King David commits adultery with a lady named Bathsheba. She's the wife of one of David's soldiers, Uriah. He's off at battle. There's adultery. Adultery leads to pregnancy. And that leads to a cover-up. We're long story short, David has Uriah killed. David's sin is on full display. He's an adulterer. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a murderer. That's 2 Samuel chapter 11. But then we come to chapter 12. And we see that God sends a prophet named Nathan to go to, Nathan, to David. rather. And, and when, when Nathan goes to David, he, he tells him a story. He tells him a story about a, a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man, well, he's rich. He has lots of animals. The, the scriptures tell us he has huge flocks and herds. Then there's the poor man. This guy has, he has one lamb, not a part of a herd, just more like a pet. He, he raises this lamb. This kind of, it's kind of funny to think about because we do this also, some of us, with pets. But we're told that he raises the sheep alongside of his children. The words of scripture. That he feeds this lamb from his own table. The Bible says this lamb was like a daughter to him. So we have these two men, very different. The rich man with herds and this poor man with one whom he treats as a child. We're told that the rich man was going to host a dinner. And as was the custom, he would kill an animal and prepare the meal. But Nathan the prophet tells David that the rich man was unwilling to kill and cook one of his own animals. So instead, he takes the poor man's one lamb, whom he loves, he kills and cooks it and feeds it to his guests. This is the story that the prophet Nathan tells to King David. What's David's reaction? We're told that David's livid. He starts making a judgment. He says, the rich man should be put to death. And the, the poor man should be repaid fourfold. That's what the law requires. What's clear is that David sees the evident sin of the rich man. And he wants justice. He hears what this man has done and he's disgusted. He, he demands restitution and punishment, even death. David has made a strong and decisive judgment. And this is where Nathan says these words that many of us are familiar with. Picture the scene. King David, prophet Nathan. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. David's like most of us. He sees another person's sin clearly. He sees it as unacceptable. He sees the need for justice. When at the same time he has done something far worse than killing a lamb, he has killed a man. He's committed adultery. He's concocted a cover-up. He's living in unrepentance. 
And at the same time, he's over the top in his condemnation of the rich man in Nathan's story. And this is a common temptation, church, to see other people's sins more clearly than we see our own. To want other people to be held accountable while giving ourselves a pass. We can be quick to call up the sins of others and demand repentance and slow to confess our own. Quick to decide that we don't deserve the kind of punishment that someone else does. It's our nature. And this is the kind of thing Jesus addresses in Matthew chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read the first six verses. I hope you'll follow along. Hear the word of God. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May God be honored in the reading and preaching of his word. Brian's already told us, and he's right, I think, that Matthew 7.1 has quite a resume. It may be the most quoted verse in all of Scripture, It may also be the most misunderstood verse in all of Scripture, while at the same time being one of the most neglected. (laughs) That's a complicated resume, isn't it? Seems contradictory, but I think it's true. It's quoted a lot in part because of the time in which we live. I don't have to tell you that we live in an age that's all about promoting tolerance. There's a constant call for, for tolerance, for acceptance, for inclusion. Of course, all those terms being defined in particular ways that aren't exactly tolerant or accepting or inclusive, it's another conversation. But they're they're rallying points. There's this call for us as a society to be these things, tolerant, accepting, and inclusive. And if anything that we believe or or say ever contradicts that agenda, then, then we get to hear this verse. Judge not that you be not judged. May be the most quoted verse, but it, it has some competition. Close competition would be John 8, 7. Let who, him who is out sin cast the first stone. Remember the Pharisees have brought this woman who's been caught in adultery, and Jesus points out their hypocrisy. As I was thinking about it, I thought there might be a third verse in the race. Maybe the second greatest commandment, another verse that gets quoted a lot in this setting. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Judge not that you be not judged. Let the one who has no sin cast the first stone. Love your neighbor as yourself. All quoted with the idea of saying, be tolerant, be accepting, be inclusive. Now, here's where we need to do some work. Because these verses have been misused, but these are the words of Christ. 
They're often quoted as people try to silence anyone who would disagree with them, but these are the words of God. And so I wanted to do this. I want to acknowledge on the front end that this is a verse that's often misused. And yet, I think we could do this. We could say it's misused. We could spend all of our time talking about how it's misused and forget this is a command of Christ for us. And so it's not essential only to say what it's not, but to say what it is and to submit ourselves to it. So we have some work to understand what Jesus is saying. He says, judge not that you be not judged. And my fear is that we would completely miss the command of God by judging the way others have used it. Then we become the hypocrites. So with that in mind, I just want to invite you <laughs> to hear the words of Christ. This command, judge not that you be not judged. And the goal is to hear what Jesus does say and not primarily what he doesn't say. But in order to do that, I'm going to seemingly contradict myself and tell you, we do need to say what he's not saying, okay? Because it's hard to understand the, the truth without understanding the error in this case. So let's ask some questions. Is Jesus saying in Matthew 7, 1, that we should only focus on ourselves and never have any critical thoughts, words, or actions towards others? Is he saying that we should never look at another person with Critical discernments. I would suggest the answer is no. He isn't calling us to be undiscerning or even uncritical. And we don't have to go far to recognize that that's not what he's saying. Just look down to verse 5 again. He says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We're going to talk about this more later. What we see here is that we do, in fact, have a responsibility towards our brother. We may have a brother or sister who needs our help. They, they may have a speck in the eye or something in their lives that they need help getting rid of. And there's a time for us to help us, even a responsibility for us to help those who are caught in sin. We'll come back to that. Let's look at another verse that, shows us that Jesus is not calling us in Matthew 7, 1 to be completely uncritical or undiscerning. Look at the next verse, verse 6. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That's not an easy verse. We're going to spend some time unpacking that. But suffice it to say that Jesus is saying there's some people who he says are in the category of dogs, and there's other people that he puts in the category of pigs, and he says there are some things that we should withhold from those kinds of people. What is that if not discernment and assessing and could we even say judging? I know we're mixing definitions here. So far we've stayed in the same paragraph. Verses 5 says, let's just go a little further down in Matthew chapter 7. Look down at verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn brushes and figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their 
fruits. Do you see this call from Jesus to discernment? There are people who are going to do and say things that are dangerous. And how do we recognize these people? We, we watch their lives. We look at their fruit. We use, to mix definitions, judgment. In fact, isn't this what Jesus was doing throughout chapter 6? When you give, don't be like the hypocrites. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. When you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. What's he doing if not assessing the lives of those whom he has classified as hypocrites? There seems to be a place for discernment, assessment, even critical assessment. You know, when we study scriptures, it's important to kind of start where we are and work our way out. We started very close. We moved through chapter 7. Now let's, let's go a little far. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take two or three others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is a verse, church, that you're familiar with. We talk about the, the process of church discipline. But what we see here is a brother who's in sin, and Jesus says not to ignore him, not to, quote, unquote, not judge him. But he says, no, go to that brother. Try to restore that brother. Encourage him to repentance and to full health. Which means when we hear Jesus say, judge not, he can't be saying that there's no place for recognizing sin or that there's no place for trying to call someone out of sin. These are a lot of examples, but I think, one, we need this context, and two, I think it's helpful for us just to see how, how to interpret a text like this. Let's go outside of the book of Matthew. You don't have to turn there necessarily. We're just going to read one verse. John chapter 7, we have Jesus speaking to the Pharisees who have accused him of dishonoring the Sabbath, and, and Jesus says, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? And then he says this, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Here he's given instructions on how to judge. He says, don't look at the outside, but know the heart. I think you probably get the point. But I'm going to push it just one step further, okay? We're, we're going to leave the Gospels. And trust me, I'm restraining myself. Because we could go lots of places. But let's, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm so used to having the PowerPoint. Don't feel obligated to turn to all these texts. But if you want to, we're, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. Paul says this to the church at Corinth. He says, For though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Remember this man who's been in unrepentant sin. And Paul says, from a distance, I've already made a judgment about this fellow. He tells the church, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We're going to talk more about this next week, that what the Bible calls us to 
is not judgment the way the world tells us that verse is defined, but it's a process of love and restoration. What's clear, there are so many examples that, that show us that in Matthew 7, 1, Jesus is not saying don't use discernment. He's not saying never to be critical. He's certainly not saying to ignore sin. He's not saying mind your own business. He's not saying you do you and let them do them. It's clear there's a place for a kind of judgment. As I said earlier, my fear is that we would get to this point and say, it's not what they say it is, and then we would be done. And if we stop there, then we've never heard the command of Christ, and we've never given ourselves a chance to submit to what he's actually saying. So we've got to push further. What does he mean? What's he telling us to avoid when he says, judge not? I'll say it like this, and I put it on your notes. Christ is speaking against an attitude of the heart that's quick to accuse and condemn. An assessment that's made without humility and gentleness. A critique that's made with, without a desire to lovingly correct and restore. Probably other things we could add. But does that give you a sense? He's not telling us to ignore sin. He's not telling us to lay aside discernment. He's not calling for silence or for us to turn a blind eye to things we see as wrong. What we see is that there's a difference between godly judgment and, here's a good English word, judgmentalism, right? If we go to a court of law and there's a judge and he's judging, we never say, well, he's very judgmental, right? Because that word has a different connotation. And I think that might be the best way for us to hear Matthew 7, 1. Seems Jesus is warning us against pride. He's calling us to avoid accusing and punishing without any view towards love or restoration. We need to hear this. Friends, I fear that many of us are guilty of this very thing. Because so often our pride rules the day. And our posture towards others isn't love, it's not restoration. It's not even a high regard for the truth, although we try to wear that as a badge. No, so often we jump in and we're like David when he heard the story of the rich man. Ready to pounce and punish. Ready to condemn without first considering our own hearts or really even considering the heart of the person we're considering. We go in without giving any thought to humility or gentleness or mercy or restoration. And yes, friends, we have similar hearts. We, we know we need to call out sin. We know we need to stand for the truth. But let's not get there so quickly that we lose sight of what Jesus is telling us here. He's telling us in clear terms, avoid being judgmental or accusing. He's cautioning us against self-righteousness and pride. Church, let's hear the warning of our Lord. Judge not that you be not judged. Isn't it funny that verse always quoted in the King James? <laughs> Lest you be judged. Our first response to the words of Christ should be examination of ourselves. So here's some questions just for you to consider. How do you respond when you see a brother or sister in sin? Now let's pretend it's not someone you're really close to, but someone out there. 
How do you respond when you hear about a moral failure? Is your first instinct prayer, hope for restoration? Or do we instantly become gossips and critics? How do we respond when we hear that it's a church or a pastor who's done something we think is unwise or unorthodox? How do we respond? Where does our heart go? Are we grieved and concerned? Or do we mock and ridicule first? I think this is a command from Christ that we need in front of us. This verse should remind us to pause before we speak or post or tweet. It should give us pause before we text a friend and spread the word about the thing we've heard. It should give us pause when we're together, friends. Can we just speak honestly? Before or after church, Sunday night life group, we're here and we're discussing the latest church scandal or bad theological take. And there's a place for these conversations. But we also need to hear the command of Christ and remember that our hearts are deceitful. And it's easy to convince ourselves that we're practicing good, godly discernment, protecting the flock, when maybe we're just being judgmental. Elevating ourselves over someone else, being quick to condemn, eager to crush. Our hearts are wicked. And I just want to call us to be careful, to hear the command of our Lord. It's also worth recognizing that this theme is a theme that continues throughout the scriptures. Of course, the one day we don't have a projector, I'm all over the Bible. James chapter 4. You can turn to James. We're going to be in two passages there. If you want. Remember, James is the half-brother of Jesus. And if you read through James, we find that he quotes a lot of things that Jesus says. James chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, a lot we could unpack there. I think what he's suggesting is that the law has told us not to slander. The law has told us not to condemn. The law has told us rather to love. So if we engage in slander or in condemnation, we're not only judging our neighbor, but we're, we're judging the law that has told us not to do these things. So he says, if you do these things, you're not only judging your neighbor, you're judging the law. And by the way, there's only one lawgiver. There's only one judge. Friends, it's not us. Who are we to put ourselves in the place of God? We can go to chapter five, verse eight. The theme continues. James says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Here he says, don't grumble against each other. If you do, you'll be judged because there is a judge and you're living in his view. We see something similar in Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 10. Paul says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or 
why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account to God himself. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So in this context, he's talking about Old Testament dietary laws. And there were some who wouldn't eat or wouldn't drink certain things. And there were others who recognized this new freedom in Christ. And the reminder is, we're all going to stand before God. He is the ultimate judge. And this is the same thing we've now seen in Matthew and in in James and Romans. A command from Christ to avoid judging others. And I hear you. I, I hear myself saying, but we must admonish one another. And we must confront one another. And we must go to the unrepentant sinner. And we must warn against false teachers. And I say yes and amen. But let's hear the command of Christ. Let's try to reconcile these things. I was reminded as I was studying this passage of a book we read together last year, Peacemaking for Families. Do you remember this? And Ken Sandy speaks of this idea of judgment. He says this. I found it helpful, and I put it on your notes so you would have it. He said, this is not to say that it's inherently wrong to evaluate or even judge others within certain limits. We cross the line, however, when we begin to sinfully judge others, which is characterized by a feeling of superiority, indignation, condemnation, bitterness, and resentment. Sinful judging often involves speculating on others' motives. Most of all, it reveals the absence of a genuine love and concern towards them. When these attitudes are present, our judging has crossed the line, and we are playing God. If nothing else I say this morning makes sense, maybe that would help to clarify We have to hear the command of Christ when he tells us, judge not. We have made it a full two words into our passage. But I was hesitant to rush past them too quickly. But now that we have considered that, let's let's move just a little further. We have a warning from Christ that follows the command. He says, judge not, and then he warns us, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. So here's the warning. When we sinfully judge, we should expect judgment in return. And here's the big question. Who's the judge? Where's this judgment coming from? And, and some would suggest that this is kind of a proverbial in that if we judge other people, they will judge us back. If you go around condemning people, don't be surprised if you find yourself on the receiving end. And if you're on social media, this is 100% true, okay? You serve as a condemning person, you will be condemned. That's true. And we'll even acknowledge this when we get to verse 12, what we call the golden rule. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's biblical. If we judge others, don't be surprised when we receive it back. And that would be the easy interpretation and the more comfortable one, honestly. But after reading Romans 14 and James 5, I don't think we can stop there. I would suggest that the judge he's talking about in verses 1 and 2 is God himself. 
Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. So let me just read for you again Romans 14, 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or do you not, or excuse me, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. You see how in that same context where he's talking about judging others, he reminds us of God the judge. Same thing in James 5. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Friends, it's more serious than if you judge other people, they will judge you. Jesus is reminding us that we are living in the presence of God Almighty. He knows our hearts and we will give an account to him. So now you have questions because you're good thinkers. Question is, but aren't we, because of Christ, free from judgment? What about justification by faith? We believe in that, right? thousand percent. So then, then what with this? Why the warning? There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, amen. Let's consider this a few ways. First, let's consider that if we are willing to live a life of unrepentant sin, judging as the example here, if we're willing to continue in that, to live in that, then perhaps our position with Christ is not what we have claimed. And if that's the case, then we should hear Romans 2 and tremble. Because Paul says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge and practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed brother and sister in Christ, let's celebrate that in Christ there is no condemnation. And let's also consider that if we continue in sin, our lives proclaim that perhaps we are not in Christ and then we do, will stand before the eternal judgment of God. So at the very surface, I think we should hear this verse and say, don't continue in sin because sin reveals our hearts and if our hearts are from God, we will be under the judgment of God. But at the same time, I don't think that's the main point of what Jesus is saying here because this is written to believers. I think Christ is reminding us that we live before the face of God Almighty and that we will be held accountable for the way we live. As believers who are in Christ... This is a warning. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. He's telling us that as we actively condemn others, we should expect that God will actively discipline us. And this is a, a teaching we have in Scripture. Think of Hebrews chapter 12. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, 
nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's a reminder for us that we have a God who loves us. He loves us as a father loves his children, which means that if we are straying, then in love he will discipline us in order to bring us back. And I believe what Jesus is telling us in Matthew 7, 1 and 2, is that as we live in greater judgment and condemnation of others, we should expect similar discipline or judgment from God. Think about the story of David. Again, God will go to great lengths to open our eyes. He won't let those who are his remain in sin. He will do what's necessary to bring us to repentance. We live before the face of God. Judge not that you be not judged. Let me go one more step. Back to Romans 14. He, he speaks of not judging a brother. He says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. I want to be careful here. We believe in justification by faith alone, which means when we stand before God as those who are in Christ, we are not there receiving punishment. And yet we have these scriptures that tell us we will stand before God. Not in judgment of whether or not we are saved. In Christ, our eternal destiny is secure. Our sins have been paid fully for on the cross. And yet, Romans 14 tells us that we will all stand before God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Whether we're at home or away, we make our aim to please him. For we must all appear. He's speaking to, to Christians. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I was hesitant to go here because it's a point that we don't have a lot of clarity on. Things we know for sure. In Christ, we are spared from judgment. We will all stand before God to give account for our lives. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but we will stand before God, and there's this idea of, of rewards being given. And let's say this much. Let's be careful in judging others, knowing that one day we will stand before the judge. It should change the way we think about sin. It should impact the way we interact with others. It should guard us from presuming that we can serve as the judge. There is only one true judge. As his people, we should be slow to pronounce judgment, knowing that we ourselves are held accountable to God. It's a call for self-examination. And we see that very clearly as we keep reading. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? The, the imagery here is ridiculous, right? A guy walking around with a huge beam trying to look in someone else's eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The point of the illustration is that we must remember our own hearts and how prone we are to hypocrisy. This deserves careful attention, and for that reason, 
we're actually going to come back to this next week. Up until about 4 o'clock yesterday, I thought we were going through this whole passage. It just wasn't wise. So for now, let's acknowledge this. That often we hold other people to standards we don't hold ourselves to. We're quick to see the sin of others and not to see our own sin. We're eager to point out the faults of others while at the same time hiding our own. That's why we started with the example of David. So let's hear the command, and we're going to let it sit for a week before we resolve. Judge not that you be not judged. Let's be willing to consider our hearts, friends. Where are you tempted to judge sinfully? Maybe there's a particular person you have in mind. Maybe someone you know, someone in your home, or someone way out there whom you've never met. I think we should hear this command and realize there are text messages that should not be sent. There are tweets that should not be tweeted. There are posts that should not be shared. There are emails that should not be forwarded. There are words that should not be spoken. There are articles that should not be read. There are documentaries that should not be watched. There are conversations that should not be joined. Because there's a constant pool to live in self-righteousness. We must look closely at our hearts. Friends, this isn't a call to, to join the world in screaming to everyone, judge not. No, this is a call from our Lord to guard ourselves from pride and to only go to our brothers and sisters when we can go in love and gentleness and with a desire to restore. We must guard the truth and we must guard what is right. But we must not disobey our Lord in the process. We are sinners in need of grace, tempted to look down on others, to tear down with our words. What's the best way to guard against this? We're going to talk next week about some practical things. But perhaps the best way to guard ourselves against judgmentalism is to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. To remind ourselves, friends, every day of who we were and that we are only who we are because of Christ and Christ alone. Yet for the grace of God, we are the person who we are tempted to judge. So if you feel this, this tug to think too much of yourselves or to think, sinfully of a brother. I just want to end by reminding you of what Paul says about us. He says we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, every one of us, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Every one of us were. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. He has raised us up with him 
seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And yet we think we have the right to judge, to condemn. Friends, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. We'll come back to this text next week. Let's pray together.